Good morning, church. A reading from God's word. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Hope y'all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Always a joy to be with y'all, particularly when we're looking at God's Word. In the event that you did not catch Gabe, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're looking at verses 1 through 7. Uh, While you open or load your Bible, just a couple of quick things. If you're new, we'd love the opportunity to hang out with you or to pray for you. So fill out a Connect card and drop it in the Connect desk, which is to my left, your right. Uh, In addition to that, we have Bibles for you. That's our gift to you. Please take one with you. Uh, if you weren't here last week, it looks a little different, right? We don't have a stage. We tore that, that, that sucker down, and, and so we're going all natural on the floor because in the event that you didn't know, right, we're going to be moving not too long from now. And if you're like, what? What are we talking about? Get on the email list, and you can get caught up. Um, I'll give you, those of you who are members who are on that email list, um, I'll let you know some updates uh, this coming Tuesday. Nevertheless, let's dive into our time for today. So in his book, I don't know if you're a reader or not, but in his book, Outgrowing the Ingrown Church, author C. John Miller gives his experience on his approach to prayer uh, from the perspective of two different churches that he used to pastor at. One was in Pennsylvania and one was in California. And in his experience at the church in, in Pennsylvania, he describes, uh, excuse me, at the church in California, I think, he, he describes the prayer meetings that they hosted as shallow and intellectualistic, adding that he relied more on his mind than he did on the Holy Spirit. He wrote that these prayer meetings were, quote, designed to maintain the existing life and ministry of our congregation expectancy, that is expecting God to be at work, expectancy seemed to be at a low among the attenders, evidenced by the fact that none of us bothered to keep a record of prayers offered and answered. I also do not think that Christians came to this prayer meeting expecting to meet God in a life-changing encounter. So that was his experience as he led one of the churches. He's ultimately saying when we would host these prayer meetings, we would show up and uh, expect actually nothing to happen. By contrast, when he moved to Pennsylvania and he hosted another prayer meeting, he wrote, people came to the prayer meeting because they expected God to work in their lives. They expected to know God better for having come, and they were convinced that he was ready to answer their prayers. 
In short, at one meeting, Christians view prayer as maintenance and as a program, where at the second meeting, they came with expectancy that Jesus would work in them. So here's the question for you, right? And just to let you know, there's an event going up on the third floor, so you're going to see the doors open and closed. Don't worry about that. Here's the question for you. What is your heart toward God in prayer? What is your heart toward God in prayer? Do you expect God to show up? See, in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul transitions from the purpose behind his letter to Timothy to now applying priorities of ministry for Timothy and the church and consequently us. And he begins with prayer. And so in our time, here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to take away. Prayer reveals or reinforces our heart toward God. Prayer, or the lack of prayer, reveals or reinforces our heart toward God. So let me pray, and then we'll look at the text. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to spend maybe a few quick moments looking at the preceding verses. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. Let me pray, and we'll dig in. God, as we come before you this morning, our prayer is that you would be present and at work. God, I pray that those who know Jesus would not only be comforted, but that they would know Jesus better. That they that a passion would be stirred for the gospel. God, I pray for those who are here and do not know Jesus. I pray that they would come to know Jesus through the proclamation of your word, because this is good and pleasing. This is part of your desire, and so we ask for that, Lord. Additionally, we ask that you would give us wisdom, but that you would also give us conviction. We are grateful and thankful for a day like today, one that has been filled with mercy and grace. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. Well, before diving into our text, it's going to be beneficial to back up just a little bit to the preceding verses in order to get the context a little better. So again, if you have your Bibles, go up to verse 18 of chapter 1. This is where Paul is concluding chapter 1. And, uh, and, and here's just kind of a summary of everything that Paul has already said. He opens up by saying, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Now, we've established this in the last couple of sermons, that the charge that Paul is giving Timothy uh, is the reason he is writing to him, and that is so that he would correct and confront false teaching, and that Timothy would begin to address what we're calling family matters. That is, essential matters for the way the church ought to function, the way the church ought to operate. And so that's why Paul is writing to Timothy. But I want you to notice that Paul continues. He goes on to say, this charge I entrust to you, my child, right? Uh, uh, In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So Paul tells Timothy, I want you to wage a good warfare. In other words, I want you to fight for the gospel. This is a battle. This is a war worth engaging. And to do this successfully, you're going to have to hold fast to faith and a good conscience. 
Otherwise, Timothy runs the risk of shipwrecking his faith similar to that of Hymenaeus and Alexander found in the last few verses. I want to focus a little bit of time on faith and good conscience. Ultimately, when we unpack that word faith, it is the gift of knowing God. So Timothy is not just a pastor, but he is certainly a believer. And so Paul is telling him, if you're going to hold fast, if you're going to wage this good warfare, if you're going to fight for the gospel in your life and in your ministry, it begins with knowing God. And that is a gift from God. In addition to that, he says, I need you to hold to a good conscience. A good conscience is the way in which we live, and and, and our conscience is what tells us uh, that we're doing something right or we're doing something wrong. And so Paul is telling them, I need you to hold on to a good conscience so that it would be consistent with your faith. In short, Paul is telling Timothy, hold on to these two things so that you wage this warfare and do not shipwreck your faith. All right, that's a brief overview of that section. As we walk into chapter 2, uh, we're going to see that chapter 2 answers the question, so, so then where does Timothy start? Right? If you're anything like Timothy, and you're like, okay, got to wage a good warfare. Got it. Right? I got to hold fast to faith and a good conscience, so what I believe and the way in which I live. Got it. That needs to be consistent. Right? I got to do that so that I don't shipwreck my faith. Got it. Cool. Where do I start? That, that sounds like an intimidating charge. How do, how do I do that? And chapter 2 uh, opens up with how to do it. So now let's go into chapter 2. We're going to consider the first two verses. Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. In these seven verses, we're going to consider three things. One of the first things that we're going to consider is the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. Paul says that the first way to to wage a good warfare, the first way to hold fast to a good conscience and to hold fast to the faith is through prayer. Prayer is a matter of priority. That's why Paul says, first of all, in other words, first things first, prayer is going to be at the top of the list. Secondly, Paul says that it has weight. There is significance to prayer. That's why he tells Timothy, I'm urging you. So it's not just a matter of urgency, like, hey, you need to make sure you do this, but it's also a matter of weight. The Christian life begins with prayer. When you consider the Christian life, for instance, when you consider prayer from others, this is where most of your story begins. Like when you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus, you can find assurance in knowing that there were people praying for you. You were someone's family member, you were someone's coworker, and they had the courage to tell their community group or to tell their discipleship group or to tell their close friend, you know what, I've been hanging out with so-and-so. I want to pray for them so that they would know Jesus. You can find prayer in the Christian life when it came to coming before God. When you came to know Jesus, you came to know Him in repentance. That's coming before God in prayer. Confessing your sin. You came praying to the Lord. 
as you grew in your faith a little bit, applying the gospel to your life came through prayer. Lord, give me the grace to uh, walk in, uh, in, in abiding in Jesus. Make me more like Jesus. May my life be in step. May it be consistent with the gospel. Your prayer life came with requests, right? Lord, would you make this happen, please? The prayer life includes praying to God based on who He is and what He does. That's saving sinners like you and I. Have you ever prayed that? you got that other coworker, that other family member, that other friend of yours. You've just been praying for them. The Christian life begins with prayer. Someone prayed for you. You came to know Jesus in prayer. You have walked in prayer. And now you ought to be praying for more to come and know Jesus. You see, in this text and throughout the Bible, prayer isn't simply a description of the Christian life. It's a prescription. And in order to elaborate this, Paul uses four words that all describe prayer. He uses the word supplication, then prayers, then intercession, and then finally thanksgiving. These are all different kinds of prayers. These are all different things that we might do in prayers. For instance, when you consider supplication, that is when we make requests to God for specific needs. That is you one-on-one with the Lord asking for something. Pretty cut and dry, to the point, right? What is supplication? Supplication is when I ask God for something. The second one, he says, is prayers. This is a general word meaning communion with God. This is when you spend one-on-one time with God, uninterrupted, intentional, undivided time with the Lord. He is not talking about, and we'll look at this later, he is not talking about casual encounters as you're walking out of the gas station or driving to work, right? Now, I'm not knocking that, but I will in a little bit. Anyway, uh, (laughs) The idea here is that this is uninterrupted, undivided, intentional time, communion with God. The next one is intercessing. Intercessing is when we come before God, when we appeal to God on behalf of others. This is where we're praying to God on behalf of someone else, whether it's for God to heal them, whether it's for God to minister to them, or whether it's for God to save them. And finally, thanksgiving is when we give thanks to God for all that He has done all that He is doing, all that He has provided for us, all that we deserve that He held back. The Christian life begins with prayer. And in this text, what I want you to see is that God through Paul shows us something. He shows us that prayer reveals our theology. In other words, prayer reveals what we believe about God. See, prayer combats false teaching. And it does so much more. But it begins with what we believe about God. You want to have a vibrant Christian or a vibrant relationship? Look at your prayer. That would be a good place to start. So prayer reveals what we believe about God. Prayer reveals our hearts. What do your prayers sound like? If you're taking notes, I would ask you to chill and just sit on that. What do your prayers 
sound like? See, for many Christians, prayers are superficial. That is, that they're really shallow. There's no depth. You can hardly tell that there's a relationship. They might be even repetitive and obligatory, but they're shallow. Some may be casual. This is where they're unintentional. And I'm knocking about like you driving to work. You might have a really long commute. That might be a really good time for you to pray. So I'm not knocking that. Here's what I mean by, by casual, right? Like when you ask someone, hey, how's it, like, tell me about your prayer life. In, in my experience, when I've asked many Christians, <clears throat> many of y'all, right? And I'm like, hey, tell me about your prayer life. There's almost like a defensiveness that comes with that. We're like, well, I pray on my way to work. I'm like, okay, well, I didn't, I'm not knocking that, man. But what that means, is what that tells me is that it's really whimsical. It's unintentional. Like you're just doing it so you have an answer for someone. That's casual. And how do you know it's casual? You can't tell me what you prayed about. What do your prayers sound like? Are they selfish? In other words, are they more man-centered? Are they you-centered as opposed to being God-centered? You see, the command to place prayer at the priority of our life is not this message of, hey, pray harder so that you get what you want. Rather, what Paul is saying is, pray earnestly so that you would draw near to God. You see, our problem, you and me, right? This isn't just you. This is, this is us. Our problem and often our frustration is that we may be asking way too many me-centered questions as opposed to God-centered questions. Me-centered questions are like, God, why haven't you done this? Why won't you do this? When are you going to do this as opposed to, God, what are you teaching me? How are you changing me and challenging me in this moment? Lord, how are you sanctifying me? What are you calling me to do in this moment? If you want to see transformation, take prayer seriously. In his book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller writes this, In prayer, you'll discover nests of cynicism, pride, and self-will in your heart. You will be unmasked. None of us like being exposed. We have an allergic reaction to dependency. But this is the state of the heart most necessary for a praying life. A needy heart is a praying heart. Dependency is the heartbeat of prayer. Prayer reveals our hearts. Prayer reveals our heart for people. Let's go to verse 2. Paul writes, For kings and all who are in high positions. We're going to pause there for a minute, okay? The word for is another word for because. And I tell you that because we're going to be looking at this word several times. Paul says this a lot because this is one continued thought throughout this section. Anyway, Paul is saying that, that prayer is the ministry uh, of every Christian because Christians are the ones who have access to God. You see, Christians are the ones who have been reconciled, that is, brought back into relationship to the Father through Jesus. Christians are the only ones who have access to God. And so when Paul says, hey, I want you to pray, make that the priority, and I want you to pray specifically, right? He makes it general, but then he goes specific to, to kings and all in high positions, right? I want to give you the context. Because this might have uh, kind of stumbled the, 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 the church in Ephesus. They might have been like, whoa, why would you say that? Here's why. Because traditional prayers in Jewish synagogues did not include prayers for people in authority, much less Gentiles. 
In addition to that, this is at the start of the church. And so the majority of kings or the majority of people in positions of authority, they're, if not all of them, they're not believers. And so when Paul tells them to pray for kings in all authority, in, all, in high places, he is telling them it's because you, as a Christian, you have access to God and you can intercede for them. Let's fast forward to our context. In our context, we have political leaders, civil leaders, social leaders. We have local leadership. Anyone who is in authority should be in our prayers. They should be in our prayers. Why? Because Christians have access to God. You see, these leaders are the ones who are making policies and laws and changes to the way in which we live. Make no mistake about it. When Paul's talking about make prayers for all people, yes, pray for all people, uh, anybody, anybody that you know in your circle, yes. And then he becomes specific about kings and authorities. Why? Because these are the individuals that are making policies and laws and changes to the way in which we live. And because they make those laws, policies, and changes, it affects the way in which we live. And so when Paul is saying, hey, I need you, I want you to prioritize prayer, it's because you have access to God. And way too many Christians spend an enormous amount of time writing leadership off. And I'm not telling you that you can't disagree with whoever it is is in office or in authority. I'm not telling you who to vote for. But whether you like it or not, there are individuals in offices and positions of leadership in our city, in our county, and in our country. And some of you are way more concerned with spreading your own gospel instead of the gospel of Jesus. You're way more concerned with whether it's conspiracy theory or the latest news or the latest post or the latest clickbait. And I've never seen you talk about Jesus and neither have they. That is why Christians put prayer at the priority of their lives. Because the life begins with prayer. Prayer uh, reveals what we believe about God. It reveals our heart and it reveals what we believe about people. And I get it. Some of you may be like, hey man, it's really hard. A lot of people are being persecuted-ish in the United States. All these policies and changes are happening. Like, you think we have it bad? Paul is telling Timothy to tell the Christians at Ephesus, I need you to pray for Nero. You know, the guy that was rounding up Christians, the Caesar that was rounding up Christians and feeding them to lions and to dogs and then rounding up Christians, taking them to his personal garden and then lighting them up on fire so that he can have light as he toured his garden if i take you to roosevelt's right now and we share the gospel with bassam and justin i'm not gonna get burned at the stake but we got plenty of excuses right when we take prayer seriously we combat not just false teaching but we replace hostility with compassion Prayer reveals what you believe about people, and what you believe about people is first shaped by what you believe about God. As if Paul is done, prayer reveals 
our heart for the gospel. Still in verses 1 through 2, Paul says, For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a life, excuse me, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Prayer reveals our heart for the gospel. Here's what that doesn't mean when he says, hey, so that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean living a low profile. Right? I'm just not going to tell anybody I'm a Christian. Right? Nah, dog. That's not what that means. Well, he says to live in a peaceful, quiet way. That's not what that means. It doesn't mean a low profile. What it means by living a peaceful and a quiet life is if the gospel isn't hindered, then, that's, then there's peace between us and governments. Therefore, we can advance the gospel. And how do we advance the gospel in a godly and dignified way? Godly refers to the internal transformation of our hearts. Dignified refers to the way in which we live among non-believers and one another, but certainly non-believers. You cannot separate belief from behavior. We pray so that the gospel may be advanced. We pray so that God would save those who don't know Jesus. We pray because we are expecting God to do what he does. We are, as one author says, shamelessly persistent. The priority and urgency of prayer reveals our heart toward God, ourselves, people, and the gospel. Next, we're going into verses 3 through 5. Here's where we see the posture of God's heart toward people. In these verses, as a continued thought, Paul writes that we pray because we're expecting God to save sinners. That's it. That's why we pray. We expect God to save people from their bondage to their sin, to redeem them, and to give them saving grace. And if you're a Christian, that's part of your story, and God is the hero of that story. Paul writes that these kinds of prayers are good and pleasing to God. He receives them, He hears them, He listens. And then Paul gives us insight toward the heart of God for sinners. Okay? Brace yourselves. This is verses 3 through 5. Let's all have a quick water break. That was intense, dude. Here we go. Verse 3. Where are we? Paul says, This is good, praying. It is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Verse 4. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, we got to do business with this verse for a moment. We're going to get a little bit nerdy, right? Some of you are like, I don't like it, but you have to, right? Because we're all theologians, okay? So we're going to get a little bit nerdy. But here's first. Here's the first thing. I do not want you to lose sight of what Paul is saying. Paul is telling us something about God's heart for people. At the essence of verse 4, that's what Paul is telling us. He's telling us about God's heart for people. All right, so here we go. One more time, verse 4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We need to first talk about what this is not, okay? What this is not is universalism. Universalism is a doctrine that teaches that ultimately God saves everybody and everybody goes to heaven, right? We also know that the Bible is very clear 
that many will reject God, they will reject the message of salvation, and they will not, in turn, be saved. Right? So we know those things. This is not universalism, and we also know what the Bible teaches. So then what is this? Well, this is a verse centered on the will of God. This is where we get ner- or nerdy. When it comes to the will of God, oftentimes when we're looking through the pages of Scripture, we're considering at least two wills. Okay? The first one is the, his providential will. The second one is his moral will. Providential will, moral will. Providential will, moral will. Okay, we're on the same page. God's providential will is what he has decreed, what he has said will happen, and what will come to pass, and that is never and cannot be violated. No matter what kind of interference, what's going on in the world, nothing is ultimately going to violate his providential will. What he has decreed will come to pass. The second one, the second one is his moral will. God's moral will is God's desire. So where one is God's decree for what is to pass, this one is God's desire for goodness and holiness and repentance. And this is violated all of the time by Christians and non-Christians. God's moral will is not only shown, but it is consistent throughout Scripture and aims to reveal the delight and desires of his heart. In Ezekiel, God goes on to say that he does not delight in the parish of the wicked. To, uh, to the churches, Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.9, he goes on to say that uh, God desires for all to be saved. And so what we're seeing is we're getting a, a, an insight into his desires, while at the same time, God is committed to truth. He is committed to holiness he is committed to justice. And so when you read verse 4, right, he says, well, he desires all people. Yeah, all kinds of people. It doesn't matter race, ethnicity, background. None of that matters. Socioeconomic status, none of that matters. He wants all kinds of people to be saved. In addition to that, his heart's desire is to see sinners turn from their sin and turn toward him. And when we consider those two wills, his providential will and his moral will, here Paul is writing about his moral will. That he desires holiness. He desires goodness. He desires repentance. And that is violated all of the time. But Paul doesn't stop there. And so he says that God desires everyone to turn from their sin. To be saved, that's the phrase, the knowledge of the truth, that they would come and know Jesus. When Paul was writing to Timothy about faith and good conscience, faith is the gift of knowing God. He wants people to turn from their sin so that they would come and know God. And so what does this mean for you and I? Well, it means that we at least know his moral will, but we don't know who, will, who God will save. Therefore, we pray and proclaim the gospel with urgency. I can't remember if it's in 1 Timothy or it's in 2 Timothy, but Paul goes on to tell Timothy that he endures all things for all people, especially the elect. And so the context of what Paul is saying is, I'm going to go wherever I need to go. I'm going to preach to whoever it is I need to preach. I know God is going to save people. I don't know who they are, but I will endure all things for them, especially those whom he saves. 
So we don't know, fine. Then we're going to pray and we're going to proclaim with urgency, with passion, and with conviction. And it's not that this isn't like a good place to grow theologically, but again, Paul is giving us insight into God's heart. Don't make the mistake of just parking there without ever proclaiming the gospel. And if that's not enough, verse 5, Paul adds a nice right hook where he gives that Mike Tyson uppercut. He says, for, there's that word again, means because, for there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, continued into verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. All right, why is this a big, why is this a big uppercut? Because this is something really offensive to the Ephesians, right? The Ephesians were soaked in idolatry and worship of idols, the goddess of sex and commerce. And there were so many different kinds of gods and goddesses that they were ultimately worshiping. And Paul gives them that Mike Tyson uppercut by saying, there is only one God, the one who desires all to turn from their sin and place their trust in the Lord Jesus. The reason that's there is because for, because there is one God. Now, before we continue on that, is it really any different for us? Oftentimes, we think we're so far away and so sophisticated from 1,500 years ago from the Ephesians, like we don't worship these goddesses. Look, I've never seen anybody worship a golden calf, but I have seen people worship money. Okay, I've never seen anybody worship the goddess of sex, but I have seen people worship sex. You know what I'm saying? When you read through the Old Testament and you read through a variety of tribes that are worshiping false gods and we're like sickened at some of the things that they do, right? It's not all that different from some of the horrendous things that happen in our day, right? And when we look at the Old Testament, we even try to, or many Christians even try to uh, like kind of smooth it out. Like, oh man, there are certain tribes in the Old Testament, even in Ezekiel and uh, in, in Isaiah, they were like child sacrificing. That's horrendous. Yeah, and over here it's called abortion, like there are all of these horrendous things going on, but we think we're just so far removed. I've never seen people worship the kind of gods that we see in the Old Testament and even in the city of Ephesus, but I've seen people worship themselves. I've seen people worship their own intellect. We're really not that different. So it should be just as offensive to you and I when Paul says, hey, there is one God. There is one God. And so by saying that there's one God, Paul is saying, hey, there is one plan of salvation, and it is through Jesus. There aren't other options that lead to the same place. Like Oprah Winfrey got it wrong, okay? I'm just going to tell you that right now, right? If you listen to the gospel of Oprah, she can be sincere and sincerely wrong, okay? There aren't these options that lead to the same place. There aren't these other mountains that you need to climb or these experiences that you need to have in order to lead to the same spot. No, Paul is saying there is one road to salvation, there is one road to reconciliation, and that is through Jesus Christ alone. In addition to that, classic Paul gives some qualifiers for his statement. And the first qualifier is that Jesus is our mediator. In other words, Jesus is the linchpin between us and the Father. 
Therefore, it is only Jesus who can reconcile. That's restoring a relationship. That's relational language. Jesus is the only one who can reconcile and restore what sin has broken. Jesus is the only one who can reconcile a relationship between man and God. And so what does this mean for you? It means that you, Christian, have access to God through Jesus. You do not need to go through me. You do not need to go through a priest. You do not need to go through the Virgin Mary or some mystical experience. The way to get to God is to come to Jesus. Paul adds that Jesus is our substitute. That is that Jesus gave himself up. No one took his life from him. Jesus, as our mediator, not only lived the life that you and I cannot live, but dies the death that you and I deserve in our place and for our sin. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God on our behalf so that we might be redeemed by the grace of God. And it was only Jesus who could have done this. Why? Because Jesus as man is the only one who can sympathize with this. Jesus as God, He's the only one who could have paid the price, the money necessary to be reconciled and redeemed. Jesus is the only one who is able to both represent and reconcile man to God. Paul doesn't end there. Jesus pays our ransom. The debt that you and I owe, that you and I cannot pay, Jesus paid really, really, really good money for sinners like you and me. He paid with His own blood. This was the currency that He used to purchase our ransom. That means that there was a bounty over our head and He paid with His blood and He freed us from our bondage to sin. And this happened, Paul says, at the proper time, meaning this was at the time God fixed it for. This is at the fitting time, similar to what Paul tells the Roman. And at the right time, God died for the ungodly. Apart from Jesus Not only do you not have eternal life, but you are still enslaved and in bondage to your sin. Apart from Jesus, you cannot say no to your sin. And it is only in Jesus that you can be reconciled to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit so that you would not only be free, but so that you could say yes to Jesus and say no to sin. This is what Jesus has done, and this is what Jesus does. This is at the heart of God to save sinners. And when we pray, do we expect Him to do so? Or have we become too cynical and too prideful? A couple of years ago, news came out that good old Kanye West became a Christian. And I remember when that happened, um, there's like these two sets of of Christians, right? There are some Christians who are like, sweet, that's awesome, you became a Christian, let's market him, right? And then there were these other Christians, (laughs) just being honest, and then then there were these other Christians who were like, nah, nah, man, that's not legit, right? Now, I don't know where this dude is at with the Lord, I don't know if he is a Christian, so I'm just going to say that, but that's not 
what I necessarily want to focus on. What I want to focus on is the Christians, when this dude was saved, let's just say, let's just say it for what it is for now, because I don't know. I don't know his heart. I don't know where he's at with the Lord. You might. I don't follow up with any of that. But uh, I want to focus on the group. They were like, nah. Check it. Jesus saved a sinner, and Christians doubted God. Like, that was the response by a large percentage of Christians. That this dude came to faith in Jesus, was sitting under the preached Word, and some Christians were like, nah. I've talked to you, because some of it has even been me, right? Like, some Christians are saved, like, yeah, we'll see. Like, Jesus does what Jesus does, and Christians don't believe it. Before this chapter, or before this section, Paul walked through his entire testimony saying, man, no one is too far from the grace of God. I should know. And yeah, there were some Christians who were tripping out. If you read Acts 9, you'll see Paul's experience after coming to faith in Jesus. Some Christians were like, this dude's in like the temple. Is he, is he for real? <clears throat> and so when we consider that, when we consider our time now, when Jesus saves sinners, when Jesus saves others, is that your response? Is it one of cynicism and pride and arrogance? All of this comes from prayer because prayer reveals what you believe about God and reveals your heart and your heart for people and your heart for the gospel. Do you desire to see people saved and set free? It's interesting. Like that's, I'll ask that question again, right? Like, do you desire to see people saved and set free from their sin, right? Like if you got a problem with verse 4, right, because you're just too cynical and arrogant, right? Like, your issue is God's will and not seeing people come to salvation in Jesus. Like, something's up. Do you desire to see people saved and set free? Do you deny people the grace of God? Like, you know you deny people the grace of God when you think they don't deserve it, which is literally the point, right? And in that moment, you're really just trying to be God. Let me encourage you as a friend and as a brother, as your pastor. You are not God. Stop acting like Him. If you withhold grace from people, it's for your benefit and your control, not because you actually love them. And so when we pray to God, we are praying to appeal to the heart of God who desires to see all come and know Jesus. Because that's what God does. He saves sinners. And finally, verse 7, we consider the posture of our hearts. So we've looked at priority of prayer. We've looked at God's heart, and we're going to look at the posture of our heart. As a result of what God does through Jesus, Paul concludes. Verse 7. Let me turn the page. Verse 7. Paul says, for. There's that word again. Because, right? So, it, so he's like, prioritize prayer, 
right? Prioritize prayer because this pleases God, because God wants to save people, because of all that he has done through Jesus, because I've been appointed as an apostle and as a preacher, right? That's what Paul says. Because of what God does through Jesus, Paul was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. As a preacher, he proclaims the gospel. As a teacher, he teaches how to live that out. And then he's specific to the Gentiles, right? That God sent him to minister to the Gentiles, those who are not of the Jewish community, those who didn't know Jesus. But here's really what Paul is saying in verse 4, right? Like he paints this beautiful picture of God's heart, and he paints this beautiful picture of Jesus as Redeemer, or yes, Redeemer, but he paints this beautiful picture as Jesus as mediator, uh, Jesus as our substitute, Jesus paying our ransom. And what Paul is ultimately saying, this is why he's explaining it this way, he's ultimately saying in verse 7, I was the most highly unlikely and unequipped candidate of all of this. But when we go back to verse 12 in chapter 1 and come all the way through chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul is saying, but God saved me. I told you my story. He strengthened me. He equipped me. And he sent me. And now I proclaim the same message that I received. I think if he could cover it, and I know that I'm prayed for. At Paul's conversion, Jesus saves him, tells him to go to Damascus and wait. And he calls Ananias and tells Ananias, hey, I need you to pray for Paul. Paul's like, I was the most highly unlikely candidate for all of this. So it's like, well, what does that mean for, for you and I? We read that like, wow, that's an amazing gospel transformation as a result of an encounter with Jesus. What, is that, what does that mean for us? Like Paul saying, I'm a preacher, I'm a teacher to the Gentiles, right? I preach the truth of Jesus. It means that we are the fruit of his ministry. God saved and used Paul, and then randomly, Paul disciples Timothy, who pastored in Ephesus, who had played a significant role throughout church history in the spreading of the gospel throughout all of Asia. And then, randomly, the gospel lands in Europe and expands eventually into the Americas, through where it's been throughout the last several centuries. And then, randomly, the gospel makes its way to McAllen. And when you think about churches like FBC, First Baptist McAllen, that was planted in 1908, several churches since then have been sent out and planted, one of which is Calvary Baptist. And you consider the ministry at Calvary and the churches that have been started and planted, and one of which in 2008 was Logos Community Church, right, where many of you came to faith in. And then randomly the gospel continues to work and then the church is replanted as storehouse community church in 2017 like all of this is the result of paul's ministry none of this is random in case you didn't know and i know some people are going to hear this on the audio i was doing air quotes um (laughs) the whole point is like man does does prayer change things you are the fruit of that you are the fruit of that. The fruit of prayer is the salvation of the saints. 
You and I are the fruit of Jesus' prayer. In John 17, when He prays specifically for those who belong to Him, you and I are the fruit of Jesus' prayer. We are the fruit of Paul's ministry. We are the fruit of Timothy's faithfulness. We are the fruit of the persistence of the saints that have gone before us. All because godly saints prioritized the urgency of prayer. See, church, prayer is not uh, a maintenance Prayer is not a program of the church. It is the heart of the church. So the question is really, will you prioritize the urgency of prayer today? Will you approach God with a humble expectancy? One of the guys and I were talking about this word. Expectancy a couple weeks ago. It's like, oh man, we've got to be cautious with that. Like, yeah, I get it if you're using it kind of like uh, uh, inappropriately, but it's not bad to expect God to do what God does, to pray back what God has revealed in His Word. Will you approach God with a humble expectancy to see transformation in your life and possibly in the lives of others? See, for some of you, prayer might be intimidating, it might be new, it might be something, yeah, I just haven't done it in a while. Let me just encourage you with a couple of things. Man, when you come before the Lord, come messy. Like, don't come having figured it out using eloquent language and using thousand thighs. I mean, if you want, that's cool. But apart from that, like, just come before the Lord. Come before the Lord and be yourself. Right? Don't use words that you never use. All right? Just, just be yourself and stay faithful. Like, I'll tell you what I use. Right? I like it because, man, oftentimes I'm, I'm always working in, in some kind of organization. I need it systemized, right? That's not always good, but it works, right? Like, personally, I use ACTS. Have y'all, have y'all heard of ACTS? A-C-T-S, ACTS, right? So it's an acronym. Right? All right, here's your free tip, right? It's the acronym. A is adoration. Adoration. Man, pray about who God is. God is good. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is just. He is true. He is loving. He is steadfast. He is faithful. That's adoration. Second one is confession. It's like, well, what do we do there? You confess your sin. Third one is thanksgiving. We talked about that earlier, right? Giving thanks to God, not just for what He has done, for what He is doing, what He has given you. Last one is supplication. Make your request known. Make your request known before God. God, I, I think I need this. God, would you do this? I think it works, but you do you. Regardless of where you start, start today. Come to the Lord and lay your heart out before Him today. And lay everything out. Everything. Lay out your hopes, your requests, your doubts, your struggles, your burdens, your troubles, your uncertainties, your questions, your thanksgivings. Lay it all out. I promise you. I promise He can handle it. Prayer is of great urgency and it is of priority. It is the first thing. We, the church, we are committed to prayer. Corporately or congregationally, communally when when we're with one another, and individually. Why? Because this is where the Christian life is begins. That's why prayer is a family matter. This is where the Christian life begins. 
So Christian, where is your heart toward God in prayer? Are you asking or laying down more me-centered questions than God-centered questions? Has your heart grown cold toward people? Man, let me invite you. Let me invite you to repent. To come before the Lord humbly but expectant. Repentant but believing. Come before the Lord. Repent in His grace. And if you don't know Jesus, I love that you're here. Thank you so much. It's a big deal that you're here, right? Like, you didn't have to be here. And you came. That, like that, I, I want to honor you in that because that's serious. That's a big deal. I love that you're here, and I'm thankful that you're here. And I love you enough to tell you, outside of Jesus, the Bible teaches that you are enslaved. You are in bondage to your sin. But God has made a way. God has made a way for you to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. That he is ready to pardon any and all who turn to him in faith and repentance. Church, prayer reveals or reinforces our heart toward God. Let's pray. Lord, may we submit and may we confess to you that we often do not pray as we ought to. Often our prayers are filled with selfish intent rather than a persistent humility. God, would you forgive us? And would you give us the grace to abide in Jesus, the humility to be bold and persistent? And the grace to change for your glory and our good. Father, there are those in this room who do not know Jesus at all. There are some who think they do. Lord, would you reveal yourself to them? Would you open, would you open their hearts to your gospel? And may the gospel take root in their hearts and in their lives. Not just so that they would be saved, but so that they would be transformed also that they in turn would take this gospel and pray and pray for those in their circles who don't know Jesus. Lord, strengthen us by the grace that is the Lord Jesus, for it is only because of Jesus that we can face today. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.